Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton de France. In Acts 16.25, the Bible says that when Paul and Silas were beaten and stocked in the inner prison at Philippi, they responded to that situation in an unusual and remarkable way. They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. The books of Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians are among a collection of literature the Apostle Paul created while he was in another prison in Rome. And it seems that prayer and hymns of praise to God were always on his mind when he found himself in that kind of situation. Those three epistles each include sections which many Bible scholars believe bear certain marks of poetic structure. And the common suggestion is that some well-known Christian hymns were in Paul's mind when he wrote those portions of the letters. One of those sections is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, where Paul celebrates the work of redemption in three stanzas. First, in verses 3 through 6, focusing on the work of the Father. Second, in verses 7 through 12, focusing on the work of Jesus Christ the Son. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit. And with each stanza, Paul concludes with the refrain, to the praise of his glory. There's another movement through these stanzas that is worth noticing. The first stanza discusses the intentions of God with all creation. Paul describes the actions of God the Father before the foundations of the world and explains how God is working to bring humanity to his original intention for them in Christ. The second stanza comes to focus on Israel, and how God revealed the mystery of his will by his wise and insightful management of Israel, bringing them to the fullness of the times in which Christ came to accomplish in completeness all that God intended. The third stanza in verse 13 begins by introducing a new group of people who comprise at least a significant portion of Paul's audience. In him, Paul writes, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You also refers to the Gentiles. That's made clear in Ephesians 2.11. And thus we have Paul's formal introduction that God's work in redemption does not concern the Jews only, but all the nations. And yet this was a controversial and challenging proposition, at least when it was first made. We may fail to appreciate the controversy today because most of us who call on Jesus as Lord are Gentiles, and there are more Gentile Christians in the modern world than Jewish ones. But that was not always the case. And when it first began to take place, it seemed difficult to believe because the Gentiles lacked the evidence of God's interest in them, which the Jews were able to claim. The Jews had a history with God. God had administered or stewarded their past, and it was full of manifestations of his grace and goodness as he had lavished gifts on them, uh, to contribute to their spiritual formation. 
It is true that when the actual history of Israel was examined, those gifts did not seem to have much impact on Israel in lifestyle and character. They were never much different from the nations around them. And they always seemed interested in becoming more like those nations rather than more separated as in accordance with God's expressed will. All the same, they still seemed to be more privileged than the Gentiles, of whom the Bible says they were allowed to go their own way, and God left himself with only the witness of his work in nature, Acts 14, verse 16. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul said that those people, as they moved further and further into rebellion against God's purposes, became further separated from him, even as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, and thus God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which were not fitting, Romans 1, 28, until they became filled with all kinds of immorality and wickedness. It truly seemed that God loved Israel and hated the other nations, at least from a certain point of view. As one reads the Old Testament carefully, he will, however, find numerous examples of God's love for all the world. His redemption of certain Gentiles into the community of the covenant, like Ruth and Rahab. His sending of the prophet Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh. And his merciful retraction of judgment when they repented. Even his frequent injunctions for Israel to love the stranger who lived among them. But it is interesting to me that as Paul discusses this issue of Gentile inclusion, he does not focus his attention on any of those texts or any of those issues. Paul does not quote any of the several passages from the prophets or other Hebrew scripture, which he knew so well and quoted in so many other places, that further articulate God's merciful intention to include the Gentiles in the Messianic kingdom. Rather, in this place, Paul looks at the present fact that Gentiles, even those to whom he was writing, had obeyed the gospel and had clearly received the benefits and blessings of Christ. In verse 13, he says, "...in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise." Note carefully how Paul lays out the experience of salvation. Number one, you listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Number two, after that, and as a result of it, you also believed. And number three, having believed, as a result of that, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, which in this case is Paul's language for participation in the kingdom of God and salvation. You heard, you believed, and you were saved. It is important to mention in this day and time that although baptism is not mentioned here, it is not excluded either. Every person who became a Christian for the first 1,500 years of church history understood that baptism was a vital part of that process and is, in fact, the event in which God grants pardon and gives the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. Here, Paul simply states that they believed. But this is because for Paul, believing meant entering into a life of faithfulness or allegiance to the Lord Jesus, and that could not be done without repentance, confession, and baptism. 
Thus, those parts of the conversion experience often went without saying. These people had accepted the lordship of Christ according to the apostolic pattern of teaching, and they had clearly received the benefits and blessings attached to it. What made that clear, though? How can you tell if someone has been forgiven by God? Jesus himself acknowledged that the veracity of the claim that sins have been forgiven is hard to accept unless it is backed up by something visible. See Mark chapter 2, verses 9-10. through 10. In this case, the proof was not a miracle of healing or something like that. It was what Paul calls being sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, the placement of this sealing with the Holy Spirit after faith in the process of conversion to the kingdom of God and the mention of the promise indicates that whatever Paul has in mind here, it is the same thing Peter had in mind in Acts 2, verses 38 through 39, when he said, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Incidentally, those who are afar off is an expression referring to the Gentiles. See Ephesians 2, 13 and 17. So here in Ephesians, we are reading about the fulfillment of Peter's words. But what exactly is the gift of the Holy Spirit or the seal with the Spirit? Now, some would equate this with baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned a few times in the preaching of John the Baptizer and then again in the book of Acts. Yet, while that is called a gift given to Gentiles and Jews after believing, which is a pretty compelling case, I'm still skeptical that this is what Peter had in mind in Acts 2.38. You see, the baptism with the Spirit, at least in as much as that expression is actually used in the Bible, seems to essentially include the phenomena of speaking in tongues. Yet the Apostle Paul tells us that not all Christians spoke with tongues, even in the first century when miracles were unquestionably, indisputably abundant in the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 30 is the text that communicates this. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Peter connected the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which he saw at the household of the Gentile Cornelius, with what had happened to him and the other apostles at the beginning, that is, on the day of Pentecost. So it seems to me that the baptism in the Spirit was something extraordinary, a special sign given to Jews and Gentiles for the benefit of Israel to see that God had truly reestablished his reign on earth through Jesus Christ. It does not seem to be something that happened more often than those two occasions, and it certainly does not appear to be something experienced by every Christian. Others would equate the gift of the Spirit with the power to work miracles of different kinds. Yet these are generally called not the gift, but the gifts, plural, of the Spirit. Uh, see Hebrews 2.4 and 1 Corinthians 12.4. Furthermore, these are, like the gift of tongues, said to be something that was not experienced by every Christian, 1 Corinthians 12, 29-30. Added to that, there is significant evidence, so far as I read Scripture, that these gifts were not given to those who believed and were baptized, 
but rather to those who, after believing and being baptized, received the laying on of the apostles' hands accompanied with prayers. See Acts 8, 14-17. However, there are two things associated with the Holy Spirit in New Testament Scripture which Paul says are indispensable to every Christian. Those are the indwelling of the Spirit and the infilling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit refers to the teaching of the Bible that when we become Christians, we become part of the true temple of God. In the Old Dispensation, God dwelt in a tent and then a stone temple in Jerusalem. That is, He manifests His presence there in the midst of their camp and their country in a special way in order to show His ownership of Israel as His special people. Here in Ephesians, as in several other places throughout the New Testament and even in the teaching of Jesus Himself, we are told that the new temple of God in the New Covenant era is a temple of living stones, not a literal building, but the people of God themselves. In Ephesians 2, 19-21, Paul said that the church is God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And just as God's presence in the tabernacle and temple demonstrated his ownership of Israel, God's presence in us by the Holy Spirit demonstrates his ownership of us. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is God's. God has given the Holy Spirit to us to mark us out as his own people and to motivate us to the fulfillment of our purpose, that is, to glorify him. Do you see the equation of motivation? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. And thus, Paul says, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. In Romans 8, 9, Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. All Christians have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But in Ephesians 5 and verse 19, Paul commanded the Christians in Ephesus to be being filled with the Spirit, which therefore seems to refer to something else. They already have the indwelling. So I suggest that the infilling of the Holy Spirit refers to something that happens to us when we ask in prayer and allow the Spirit of God to work in us to bear the fruit that God is seeking, namely the character of Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, Paul describes what that means. The fruit of the Spirit, that is, that which the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the Christian who is being filled with the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So the Holy Spirit is given to us 
to dwell within us and work within us. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, he is called the power that works within us to the two ends that we might be motivated and strengthened or empowered to glorify God by being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Of course, this raises the question, how does the Spirit accomplish this work? In all matters pertaining to God and His work, we must be prepared to encounter mysteries. God, like any person, has the right to reveal to us only what He chooses to reveal, and there are some things which He has not revealed. However, there are two important facts which I believe the Bible does teach about the work of the Holy Spirit, and these need desperately to be known by all Christians for our enjoyment of this tremendous blessing from God. First, that the work of the Holy Spirit is significantly accomplished through the revelation of God's prophetic and apostolic word, which is now deposited in the Scripture according to God's own plan and purpose. In Acts 4, 25, 21, 11, and Hebrews 3, 7, the words of Scripture are called that which the Holy Spirit says. In the book of Revelation, each time Jesus' declarations were written by John, he closed his message identifying it as what the Spirit says to the churches. All the works of the Spirit foretold by Jesus in John 16, 8-11, to convince and correct the world in respect to the righteousness of Christ and the sin of not believing Him and the judgment of Satan and the powers of darkness, all of those works are fulfilled on the day of Pentecost and by the Spirit Himself, but always through the preaching of the Apostle Peter. All the works of the Spirit predicted in other parts of that same discourse from John 14 to 17 are fulfilled in the teaching of the apostles. The Spirit reminded them of all the things they had learned from Jesus, John 14, 26. The Spirit led them into all truth and told them things to come, John 16, 13. And the Spirit took what was from Jesus in heaven and revealed it to men on earth through the apostles, John 16, 14 through 15. We learn the will of Christ that was revealed by the Spirit. We become spiritual people who know the mysteries of God by being instructed in the teaching of the apostles, Acts 2, 47, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. We believe in Him through their word, John 17 and 20. So we cannot proceed rightly unless we understand the indispensable role of the Scripture in the work of the Holy Spirit. But I believe the apostles teach that this is not the only thing that the Holy Spirit does to help us and to accomplish God's work in us and bear fruit in us. It is not merely that He helped to create the Bible and then retired to see how we would do with it. God has put the Holy Spirit in us— and he works in us in a way described by Paul, uh, particularly in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The Holy Spirit strengthens us with power in the inner man, that is, in our own spirit or mind, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I think that last clause is best understood as a reference to Christ's rule and will being established in our lives. We learn the rule and will of God through the Scripture, but we receive the power and strength to walk and live in it by the help of the Holy Spirit in our inner man. Several times throughout the Bible, we read about God or the devil or some evil spirit or the Holy Spirit putting it into someone's heart to do such and such a thing. I realize that because we're talking about spiritual things, we might immediately jump to ideas about voices from heaven or divine inspiration or revelation of previously unknown truth or the mysteries of God. It is true that we read about things like that sometimes as well, but when the phrase, God put it into so-and-so's heart or the devil put it into so-and-so's heart or something like that is used— There's no indication in those contexts that there was an audible voice or that what was put into the heart was a a supernatural education, some kind of new information or something like inspiration, as we typically think of the idea. Rather, it was a thought or a suggestion on what that individual ought to do or ought not to do. If you've ever had a conversation with a person or attempted to direct or influence the decision of, that somebody would make, then you have done the same thing described here. Because you're a human being, you cannot put something into another person's heart without some kind of external indicator of what you want them to think. Perhaps you can manipulate their environment or you can write something down for them to read or you can speak in such a way that they can hear and understand your suggestion. Now, That's us. Spiritual beings are not so limited. Evidently, they can put a suggestion directly into a person's mind uh, without writing it or speaking it or manipulating their environment so that that person, unless he or she is very discerning, might not even know where the idea came from. They might even think that it was his or her own idea. I believe the Bible teaches that this is how the devil and evil spirits tempt us to sin. You can see this in passages like Judges 9.23, John 13.2, James 1.14, as well as others. We may never hear a voice. I never heard a voice, not from the devil. Uh, At least I didn't recognize it as coming from the devil, if it was, but Even if we never hear a voice or never have some sensational experience, there is someone influencing us, trying to get us to do something, in this case, to sin. And they're working in our hearts, in our minds. Now, listen, if I put an idea into your heart by telling you to do something, do you have to do it? Have you lost your free will simply by the fact that I have uh, suggested something to you? Certainly not. You can ignore me or utterly reject my idea, or if you choose, you can think about it, or you can fully embrace it and put it into action. The Bible teaches the same thing is true when the devil tempts us. True, he has the power to place his suggestions directly into our minds, and that's a great power, but we have the power to respond to those suggestions, even if we don't fully recognize where they came from, 
according to our own will, meaning we can either embrace them, John 8, 44, or we can resist them, James 4 and verse 7. I suggest to you that the same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit who is in us, God is at work to strengthen us with the power to do his will, just as the devil is at work to tempt us and play against our weaknesses and lead us into sin. The Holy Spirit does not have to speak audibly. He can put it into our hearts to have the joy or peace or patience or faith that we need. And likely he will do this by reminding us of something we have learned previously from his revelation in the Holy Scripture. That's certainly how the Spirit assisted Jesus when he was combating the devil in the wilderness of temptation. So we see that to live out the will of God, to bear the fruit of the Spirit and be transformed into the image of Christ, we must first learn God's will from his word. Second, we must ask for God's help and strength by his Spirit. Indeed, God desires to give this gift, but he gives it to those who ask, says Luke eleven thirteen, And that's why Paul was praying for it to be given to those to whom he was writing in this letter. And number three, we must submit to and embrace the influence of the Holy Spirit when he comes to help us. Just as we are encouraged to resist the devil, the Bible warns that we can resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7 and verse 51. And later in this same book, Paul warns that if we hold on to wicked behavior, we are grieving the Holy Spirit with whom we were sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians 4 and verse 30. Paul says that God will never allow us to be tempted in a way from which we cannot escape, and that in fact God himself will provide the way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But it will not benefit us unless we embrace what he's doing for us and in us, and we choose to escape. When the work of the Spirit in us is sought and embraced by our willful submission, the fruit of the Spirit is produced in our lives. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 16, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and of your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. Faith and love, these are the fruit of the Spirit. And when Paul heard of these things in these people, he knew regardless of their past, God was working in them to redeem them. Paul calls this work of the Spirit a seal and a pledge and a promise. These are all images of God's claim of ownership of us and of God's determination to finish the work he has begun in us. We are men under construction. We have been saved, but we are also being saved, and we look forward to the revelation of our full salvation. We have been brought into Christ, and Christ is being formed in us now by the work of the Holy Spirit. And one day, when Christ returns, we will be fully transformed into his image by the resurrection of our bodies from the corruption and mortality brought on by sin. Blessed be God the Father. Blessed be Jesus Christ, the Son, and blessed be the Holy Spirit for all they have done and all they are doing to the praise of the glory of God.